We're going to spend a few minutes looking at uh, this lesson from uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, We're going to consider 1 Samuel 24 and also uh, 1 Samuel 26, uh, which is a very similar story of uh, David's encounter with Saul. You're in the middle of a series on suffering. Uh, We at Church of the Resurrection are in the middle of a series on 1 Samuel. And in God's kindness, those two things have kind of come together for me today. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a sermon on loving your enemies from this passage. This one is essentially the same sermon on suffering at the hands of your enemies. Because as you suffer at the hands of your enemies, the right way to respond is by loving them. Uh, And we're going to think about how uh, David models that for us this morning. But as we do, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of the Lord Jesus our supreme concern. Amen. So my friend, uh, a very fine Christian man, had been bullied by his pastor. He'd been falsely accused of a number of things uh, which were untrue. He'd been a very faithful servant uh, within his church, but for a a load of complex reasons that really had nothing to do with my friend, uh, the pastor had taken against him, and he ended up driving him and his family out of the church. And as uh, we sat and we talked, uh, and we we processed this together and we prayed, he said to me, you know, with, with real kind of vehemence, real passion in his voice, There are days when I just want to bring him down. There are days when I just want to expose him for who he is. And I think I could do that if I wanted to. Maybe maybe you've been reading in the news about what's been happening to Christians in Egypt. And you've read about uh, churches being burned. And as the the Christians protested the burning of one church, uh, they got together to protest and the army came. And uh, in a very heavy-handed way, dealt with the protesters. 25 were killed and thousands were injured. It goes through your mind uh, as you hear that kind of story. Christians being treated in that way simply because they are Christians. There are all kinds of ways of, of suffering in this world, aren't there? There's suffering that comes from sickness There's suffering that comes from natural disasters. There's suffering that sometimes comes upon us because of our own sin and and we reap the consequences of our sin in our lives. But there's also the suffering that comes from the hands of other people, from the hands of people who, for whatever reason, have decided to set themselves against us and to treat us as their enemies. Sometimes that suffering can be fairly small and it can be no more than not really the result of someone being malicious so much as someone being thoughtless, a careless word uh, at the wrong time. Sometimes it can be more sustained and more intense. Sometimes it can be intentional, the result of, of the way a boss will treat you at work. In a marriage, the way a husband treats his wife. Within a family, the way parents can treat their children. 
Sometimes it can be fairly small. Sometimes it can be consistent and ongoing. Sometimes it can be big and dramatic like the events in Egypt. Like my friend being pushed out of his church family. And the question is, how how are you going to respond? We're all going to have that kind of suffering, maybe on a small scale. Maybe for some of us here this morning, we've experienced it on on a much bigger, more intense and more painful scale. How are you going to respond? The story of David, from the moment he kills Goliath onwards, right to the end of 1 Samuel, is a story of unjust suffering at the hands of his enemies, particularly unjust suffering at the hands of King Saul. David has been brought into Saul's house. He's been the only one who can help Saul, as Saul is possessed by an evil spirit, and in his distress, David plays music for him and, and soothes the king. He's essentially been adopted into Saul's family, and Saul will refer to him as David, my son. But because he kills Goliath, and because he continues to have victories against the Philistines, the people of Israel's enemies at that time, David becomes very popular. People start to sing his praises, and Saul is full of jealousy. Saul feels threatened and intimidated, and begins to realize, Samuel has already told him that God has taken the kingdom away from Saul. So Saul feels threatened, and he decides he's going to have to deal with David. And so in chapter 18, twice Saul picks up his spear and throws it at David, trying to pin him to the wall. He's not a very good shot, so twice he misses. In fact, the third time it happens, Saul throws the spear at uh, Jonathan, his son, and Saul is such a bad shot that the writer doesn't even tell us that he missed, because we know that's already the case. (laughs) David ends up fleeing, on the run from his family, on the run from his homeland, and uh, in chapter 21, he escapes and he goes to Gath, uh, a Philistine town. Now, Gath is the hometown of Goliath, all right? So David has killed Goliath, And it's a sign of how desperate he is. It's a sign of how much danger he's in, that he figures, I'm safer in Goliath's hometown than I would be in the king's palace, in my own home. So he lives life as a fugitive on the run. He then has to flee, and he lives in in the caves, uh, hiding out with a band of about 600 people around him. Then in chapter 22, Saul shows just how murderous he is by coming to the priests who've kind of unwittingly helped David to escape from Saul. And Saul discovers this and he goes there and he has them all slaughtered. He goes to the priests of God and he kills 85 of them. And then he goes to their town and he slaughters their wives and their children. This is the kind of maniac that David is dealing with. And then in chapter 23, Saul finds out where David is. And in verse 7, he's told that and he he, he says, God has given David into my hand because he shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul says, great, he's in a walled town. Now I've got him cornered. And throughout these chapters, there's a question. the, 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 The phrase that's repeated is, God has given into your hand. God has given into your hand. God has given him into my hands. Other people are saying God has given him into your hands. Saul is saying, just wait till I get my hands on him and see what I'll do. 
David escapes. He's warned. He escapes. And then the Ziphites, in verse 19 of chapter 23, the Ziphites, a local tribe, come and start stirring. And they say, hey, Saul, we know where David is. We know where David is. Isn't he hiding over there in the hills? If you go there, you'll find him. And so off Saul goes. And then in 24, we find out the encounter between David and Saul. And as it turns out, Saul is coming after David to get his hands on him, to murder him. But actually in the chapter, God doesn't give David into Saul's hand. God gives Saul into David's hand. God gives Saul into David's hand, so David has a chance to put an end to this once and for all. David has a chance to deal, a God-given opportunity to deal with Saul and put an end to it. What does he do? What would you do in that circumstance? I mean, this is extreme suffering at the hands of your enemies. On the run, homeless, constantly in danger. Well, in verse 2 of chapter 24, Saul takes 3,000 chosen men, 3,000 chosen soldiers out of all Israel and goes to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And that number 3,000 is significant for two reasons. It's significantly, firstly, because David only has 600 men. So Saul is outnumbering him five to one. There is no doubt who will win this fight. The second reason it's significant is because earlier... Uh, In chapter 13, Saul has chosen 3,000 men to fight against the Philistines. He's got a bigger army than that, but these are his crack troops. And he chooses them, 3,000, to fight the Philistines. Now he's treating David just like a Philistine, just like an enemy of God's people. And he takes his 3,000 men. And he gets to the sheepfolds, uh, and then he comes to a cave And it's obviously been a long march, and Saul needs to go to the bathroom. So in verse 3, Saul went in to relieve himself. Literally, he went in to cover his feet. It's a euphemism for using the bathroom, which actually, when you think about it, is a euphemism for, well, we, we won't go there. But he goes in to relieve himself. He's So here is Saul. He walks into this cave, and unknown to him, there is David and his 600 men hiding at the back of the cave. It's a moment of high drama. Saul has come with 3,000 men, but now he is separated from his soldiers. He's alone. And how can I put it? He's indisposed. And the only other time that phrase, cover his feet, is used in the Bible, it's used in the story in Judges 3, the story of Eglon and Ehud. Eglon is a king who is attacking God's people. And Ehud is a a rescuer, a judge, whom God raises up to save his people. And what happens is Eglon goes uh, to... Let me get this right. Ehud goes to King Eglon. Ehud the deliverer goes to King Eglon. And he tricks him. He goes with a secret message. And the secret message is a sword that he plunges into the king and kills him. So the only other time it's used, it's used of a righteous man going and killing an evil king. 
The writer's calling our attention to that story and building the tension. What is going to happen? Here is David, the righteous man, the Lord's anointed, and this evil king has come against him. And David's men are quick to pick up on the opportunity. Verse 4, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Have you ever had that experience? Where someone's hurt you, someone's done something to wrong you, and your friends gather round, and they say, well, here's how you can get back at them. Look, you're our friend, we love you, we support you in this. We're on your side, and we think you should do something to take action. I was um, at a friend's house not long ago. They had an alley at the back of the house, and we were sitting towards the back of the house, and suddenly we heard all this yelling and shouting, and I turned around, and there were two lads fighting. And surrounding them were a group of maybe 15 or 20 others. They must have been 15 or 16, and there were about 20 of them around there. And as the fighting died down, the lads around them started yelling again, hit him, hit him harder, do it again, and just egging them on. And the fight kind of carried on, tumbling down the alleyway, and it went out of view. That's what David's men are doing here. Not shouting, but whispering in the cave. David, now's your chance. And I don't know whether they're picking up on the prophecy that God is going to give David the kingdom or whether they're just lying. But they're saying, look, God has, God has put Saul here. He's given him into your hands. So David picks up his sword and he creeps forward in the darkness of the cave And he reaches Saul. But unlike Ehud, he doesn't plunge his sword into Saul. All he does is he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. How do you respond when someone hurts you? How do you respond when you suffer at the hands of someone who's treating you like an enemy? David shows us that the first rule, the first way to respond is, it's the first rule for doctors and nurses. First, do no harm. Even if you can't help the patient, do no harm. David refuses to attack King Saul and kill him, even when he's given into his hands. In fact, he's not quite as innocent as he at first appears. You see that in verse 5. He cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, and afterwards David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. In the Old Testament, the robe is the symbol of authority. The robe is what the king wears to show that he's the king. And if you cut the robe, then it's a sign you want to cut the kingdom away from the king. So when Saul grabs Samuel's robe in, verse, in chapter 15 and he tears it, Samuel says, Saul, that's a sign that God is going to tear the kingdom away from you. So although David doesn't kill Saul, it looks like he's saying, Saul, I'm, at this moment I'm grabbing hold of the kingdom. And he immediately realises what he's done. And he's, he's full of horror. His heart strikes him and he repents of his sin. He repents of even trying to take the kingdom from Saul. He's not going to snatch at the kingdom. He's going to let God give it to him in his own good time. And verse 6, why does he do that? He does it. Because he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him, seeing that he's the Lord's anointed. So he refuses 
to kill King Saul. He refuses even to, to want to snatch the kingdom away from him because he knows that God has put Saul in place. Saul is the Lord's anointed. He's been set apart, specially chosen by God. And so to attack him, says David, would be to attack God. And so he refuses even to let his men attack him. It's tempting, isn't it? When someone hurts you, maybe not to to hurt them back, but maybe just to tell other people in the hope that someone else will find a way of getting even with them. Saul won't even do that. In my translation, it says he persuaded his men with these words. In uh, the translation we heard read to us, it, it said he rebuked his men. Literally, he tore into his men. He's not going to tear the kingdom away from Saul. And to stop his men doing that, he tears into them. The only violence that happens in the cave is David's violent words preventing his men from attacking Saul. David says, because he's the Lord's anointed, I'm not going to hurt him. And you can say the same thing about Christians. It's sad but true that often we suffer at the hands of other Christians, just like my friend that I was telling you about. And yet Christians too are anointed by the Lord. In our baptism, as we're given the Holy Spirit, we're set apart and marked out as belonging to him. And so no matter what another Christian has done to you, they're not your enemy. They're your brother or your sister. Another friend of mine who, again, who lost a job at the hands of Christians, as I prayed with him, he prayed for them and he prayed for my dear brothers. And we talked about it afterwards and he said, they're not my enemies. They've harmed me, but they belong to Jesus and they're my brothers. So first, do no harm. Second thing we learn from David is seek to be reconciled. Saul leaves the cave completely unaware of anything that's happened. And immediately he goes out of the cave. David follows him, verse 8. He goes out of the cave and he calls after Saul, my lord the king. Why on earth is he doing this? Saul has come to kill him and now David is putting himself at risk. He's moving out into the open where Saul can attack him. Why does he do it? Well, he does it because he's not content to leave Saul in his sin. He's not content to remain unreconciled to Saul. So he goes and he tries to restore their relationship. He humbles himself. He bows down with his face on the earth and pays homage. He shows respect to the king. David is so concerned that their relationship be restored that he's willing to make himself weak and vulnerable. It's always the case when you try and reconcile to someone, when there's a problem in a relationship, whether it's your fault or not, if you're going to take that first step, you are going to make yourself vulnerable. You're going to leave yourself wide open to being hurt again. And yet David does that. And he says, verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen. Look, God gave you into my hands today. And some of these people told me to kill you, but I didn't. Saul, I'm not a threat to you. I love you. 
you're God's king. Can we not be reconciled? I know who it is who's hurt you or how they've done it. But can I urge you to, to be courageous? It takes great bravery. But to take the first step, not to say, look, they've offended against me. And if they want to make it right, then I'm willing to accept an apology. But to be brave and to be gentle and to be gracious and to take the first step and to love them enough to seek their repentance. David doesn't just pretend like Saul hasn't sinned against him. He does rebuke him. He warns him. In verse 11, end of verse 11, you're hunting my life. So he calls out his sin. But more than anything, David wants to be reconciled. How is he able to do that? Well, that's the third thing that we see. David trusts the Lord to deal with Saul. How is it that David doesn't take revenge? How is it that he can seek to be reconciled to Saul? Well, it's because he's trusting the Lord to deal with the problem. Reading this week about a man called Ben Freeth, who uh, was a white farmer in Zimbabwe, and he's recently written a book called Mugabe and the White African. Back in the, uh, in about 2000, for a few years, Robert Mugabe had a, a policy of taking farms from white farmers and giving them to his... He claimed he was giving them simply to the, the, the black people who had owned the land in the first place. Actually, what he was doing was repeatedly giving them to his own henchmen. So he would take farms that had been in people's families for generations, two, three, four hundred years. And as that happened, I, I don't know if you can think back, I can vividly remember the scenes on the television of, uh, of gangs coming onto farms and uh, driving the farmers off the land and beating them, torturing them, killing them. Well, Ben Freeth was one of the people who had farmland taken. His father-in-law also. And, and, and Freeth and his father-in-law and his mother-in-law were beaten. They were tortured. And later his father-in-law died uh, because of the torture. Ben is a committed Christian. He stayed in Zimbabwe because he believes it's his duty to try and resist Robert Mugabe and to stand up for the rights of other people. I saw this interview with him and he was asked, how is it, how is it that you can stay there? What has this done to your family? And he said this, when there is no law or protection through the law, there is still God. He has sustained us through everything And as a family, our faith is far stronger now than when the violence first started. I was always taught by my father that life isn't fair. And he was right. But ultimately, God's justice will prevail on Judgment Day. And we count ourselves privileged to know his love for us and to have seen his protection over us through very traumatic times. Life is not fair but there is God. Life is not fair, but his justice will prevail on judgment day. What is it that keeps him from taking revenge? What is it that keeps him from trying to strike back and establish justice by his own hand? It's the fact that he knows that God is just and that one day God will see that justice is done. 
It's the same for David. So verse 12, he says to Saul, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not come against you. Saul, even if we're not reconciled, Saul, even if you don't repent, I am not going to avenge myself because that's God's job and he'll do it perfectly. He'll do it justly. What is it in a violent land where there is no rule of law? What is it that keeps people from picking up a sword or a gun and taking revenge? It's knowledge that God will execute perfect justice. He will avenge his people. And that is good news. That is good news if you're one of the weak and the oppressed and the suffering in the world. It is good news that Muammar Gaddafi will no longer murder and torture and destroy his people. So that's Psalm that we read at the beginning. I don't know how you felt reading it as David was calling for God to judge his enemies. That's a psalm that that the heading of the psalm tells us. That's a psalm taken from this episode in David's life. You see, David's love for Saul, David's refusal to take revenge is not a kind of insipid refusal to take revenge. It's not weak. It's not passive. Because he does pray for God to take revenge and see that justice is done. Now, this is an extreme example. And if someone's just said an unkind word to you, I take it we're not going to pray, Lord, will you strike them down? But if you're in a relationship that has turned really sour and you have been mistreated, then you can ask, God, will you deal with this, please? God, will you see that justice is done? How are you going to pray for Christians in Egypt as they're being murdered? Well, the Psalms teach us how to pray. One of the things we pray is, Lord, please keep your people from taking revenge. Wouldn't it be tragic to hear of Christians murdering their neighbours in response? It has happened in other countries, and it's always tragic. So please keep your people from revenge. But also, it's right to pray, Lord, please avenge your people. Please avenge them. Please judge those who are harming them. If it's not right to pray that, we need to cut a lot of psalms out of our Bibles. So first, do no harm. Don't take revenge. Second, seek reconciliation. Third, trust God to see that justice is done. And and as... David finishes his speech. Saul responds, he weeps. And he acknowledged that David is more righteous than he is. You've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. And he acknowledges, verse 20, now behold, I know that you surely will be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Saul recognizes that David is in the right, that he is in the wrong, and still... He refuses to repent. The tragedy is Saul sees the truth of it, but he and David are not reconciled. The end of verse 22, Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
they're not reconciled. Uh, And in chapter 26, the cycle begins again. Chapter 26 is almost the same story told again. It starts in verse 1. The Ziphites, again, the same tribe, came to Saul saying, look, David's in these hills now. So Saul got up and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. What would you do? David finds himself trapped in a repeating cycle of threat and danger and violence. And again, God gives Saul into his hands. Again, he gets a chance to escape. What would you do if you were David? It's kind of wash, rinse, repeat. David just does exactly the same thing again. He, he goes up into Saul's camp. He takes a, a young man named Abishai with him. They go into the camp and they find Saul sleeping. And Saul is sleeping with a spear stuck in the ground at his head and a jar of water by his head as well. All of his troops are asleep and Abner, the general, who's kind of Saul's bodyguard as well, he's sleeping by at Saul's right hand. But they're all so fast asleep that they creep in and Abishai says to David, look, verse 8, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. You know, Saul has been throwing this spear around and he's, he's failed to pin anyone to anything. And Abishai says, I'm not going to need a second chance. Let me take his spear and do to him what he's been doing to you. It's only just. It's only fair. And David says, don't destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So they take the spear and they take the the jar of water and they creep out of the camp. And again, David calls out. Only this time he doesn't call out to Saul. He calls out to Abner. Calls out to Abner the general. Why does he do that? Well, in verse 15, he says, Are you not a man? Who's like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. It's true, isn't it? Abishai had gone in there to destroy the king. And David's saying two things. He's saying, Abner, why were you not protecting the king? He's also saying, Abner, I was protecting the king. Abner, I was keeping watch over the king. I was looking out for his interests. See, that's the fourth thing. Not just do no harm, not just seek reconciliation, not just trust the Lord, but seek your enemy's good. It's what Jesus says, isn't it? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So as my friend and I prayed... I was astonished to hear him pray, Lord, I trust you, I love you. And then to name his, the pastor and say, Lord, will you pour out your blessings on his life? Lord, will you pour out your blessings on that church, on his family, on his ministry? 
If someone's hurt you, is there something you can do to do them good? Is there something you can say about them to others? Is there something you can do to them personally? Is there a way you can pray for them that will call down God's blessings on their life? The story ends in much the same way with David confronting Saul and with Saul acknowledging that because David is righteous, God will give him the kingdom. Because God doesn't leave these things unnoticed. God sees all that is going on. And the story of David and Saul in these chapters is this. The message is that for those who are hostile, for those who strike out against God's people, they will lose the kingdom. But for those who trust God, for those who love their enemies, even when they're suffering at their hands, God sees them and will reward them. And in this, David is just a picture, a, little, a type, a little picture of Jesus. Just a small foreshadowing of exactly how Jesus behaved in the Garden of Gethsemane. As an army came against him, as he was outnumbered, as, as they bring soldiers with weapons to, ca- to capture him. God gives the army into his hands. That's the point in John 18, when Jesus says, I am he, what do they do? They fall backwards Such is Jesus' power and authority that he is the one completely in control of the situation. They can do nothing to take him. And yet he refuses to strike out at them. And when his friends strike out, when Peter cuts off the ear of the servant, Jesus tears into him, Jesus rebukes him and says, stop. In Luke's gospel, we find that he heals the guy's ear. He refuses to avenge himself. Instead, he entrusts himself to the God who judges justly. He suffers at the hands of his enemies and is crucified and died. And then God raises him from death and gives him the kingdom. Jesus is a small, uh, David is a small picture of Jesus. The pattern of David's life of suffering, rejection, is the pattern of Jesus, his life. It's also the pattern of our lives, because every time we suffer at someone's hands, it's like a little death, isn't it? It's painful. It can mean the death of a relationship. It can mean the death of a job or a career. It can cause deep suffering, and yet God is the God who raises the dead. And when we suffer... It's sometimes right uh, that we stand up against those who are hurting us. It's sometimes right that, that, we, that we point out their sin to them and point out what they're doing and say, hey, don't do that. It's wrong. One of the delightful things about Tabitha, my eight-year-old, is a, a developing strong sense of justice. Uh, we saw it actually in the news about Colonel Gaddafi. She's been relentless in wanting him to be brought to justice. He should be in prison. Um, I saw it a little while ago when I, she'd picked up on the fact that I'd hurt her sister, her younger sister. And Tabitha came to me and said, Daddy, that was wrong. 
you need to go and say sorry to Evie. I was grateful. I was grateful that she called out my sin and gave me a chance to apologize to my daughter and, and, and be reconciled to her. It's right to confront sin. It's right to protect the weak and the vulnerable. Sometimes it's right to go to a higher authority and seek justice. It's never right to strike out and take personal revenge. But as we refuse to do that, as we bear suffering at the hands of our enemies or even suffering at the hands of our friends or our spouses or our children or our parents, God sees, God knows we can commit ourselves to him and ask him for justice, knowing that that may come in this life. And if it doesn't come in this life, it will come in the life to come when he raises us into his kingdom and pours his blessings on our life. Let's pray.